This is another reason why we advocate for trying to describe the entire problem as influence operations. So perhaps if you take the umbrella term, you can start to look at all these activities together and start to find, you know, proactive indicators of such campaigns happening. But right now, what it also feels like is that the only point of intervention we have to deal with influence operations are the platforms. It's the companies. And I mean, to that, I'd also ask, like, where are the commitments from politicians and their supporters to not engage in unacceptable influence operations? Welcome back to the Zero Hour, brought to you by Safeguard Cyber. I'm George Comedy. I'm Ashley Stone. And today's guest is Alicia Wanless, who has returned. We talked to her late last year in one of our more listened to episodes. It was around disinformation, misinformation. And, and really the difficulty of pinning down the distinctions uh, for influence operations. That was mostly about geopolitical election interference, things like that. Um, but she has returned to talk about her new paper and her new position at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. She's incredible. She does a great job of distilling a truly complex conversation um, into really digestible bits, especially as it relates to public health information. Yes, and if you're looking for easy binary answers, this is not the conversation for you. It's complicated, <laughs> it's nuanced, we love it. And without further ado, let's get into it with Alicia Wanless. Welcome back to the Zero Hour, Alicia Wanless. So good to have you again. Thank you for having me back, I'm happy to be here. Yes, so many things have changed since last we spoke, uh, including some definitions of disinformation, misinformation, influence operations. We'll get into that. Uh, mostly, um, you have a new position, which is the co-director of the Partnership for Countering Influence Operations at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, which sounds like a big deal. It's a great title. So why don't we start there? Why don't you tell us about your new role at Carnegie? Sure. Uh, so the Partnership for Countering Influence Operations aims to foster a cross-sector multidisciplinary community that's researching and countering influence operations. And essentially, we have three core pillars to our work there. First, we aim to provide a baseline on what is currently known about influence operations and how to counter them. Second, we foster a multidisciplinary community working to understand and counter influence operations. And in doing that, we try to promote some standards for their work. And third, this work feeds into our wider research agenda aimed at developing collaborative pilot projects for measuring the spread of influence operations across online platforms, but also the effects of influence operations and the effectiveness of countermeasures. That's going to be awesome. a big focus of our work for 2021. That's good. Sounds like we're, we're now bridging uh, academia into policy and ability to, to, to measure the countering, which is uh, productive and very, very necessary. Yeah, we're certainly trying to do that. Um, it is a, a very complex network of stakeholders that need to be engaged. Um, we've done a little bit better so far bringing in industry, academia, um, and other think tanks for sure. Um, in 2021, we'll be looking to try to bring in other areas like media, um, the CSO world, the um, civil society groups, et cetera, and government. Nice. That's great. You're and speaking of the research that you're doing, your latest paper is Unmasking the Truth, Public Health Experts, the Coronavirus, and the Marketplace of Ideas. It looks at the challenges facing public health experts and asserting their views in the mass media landscape. 
what are the challenges that public health experts face against these influence operations? Yeah, public health officials face many challenges, unfortunately. Um, so just a few of them off the top. First, they're communicating in a really crowded information environment where it can be difficult to be heard, even if you have a good pulpit. The second problem is that, at least in the context of COVID-19, they're also trying to communicate in a period of great uncertainty. And this gives some mm -hmm. adult, added challenges to what they're trying to do. Um, the first is that uncertain situations create information voids whereby little is known about what is happening. And there's not a lot of accurate information out there for to explain the, the issue. So the challenge here is that humans by nature don't really handle ambiguity very well. It's the same part of the brain that processes fear is activated in uncertain situations. And so people become kind of compelled to seek out answers, any answers to reduce the uncertainty. The second yeah. issue is that mostly being doctors and scientists, they're committed to communicating truthful or accurate information. And that can take months when you have a new disease emerging. So that's really difficult. And then the third area is the role of politics. Um, both having political support and not having them cooperate uh, pose challenges for public health officials, for sure. Yeah, it, that paper was interesting. One, because I thought it was useful to read something that wasn't about COVID-19 mis- and disinformation, but rather looking at the people who are trying to swim upstream against it, right? And it's, it's very powerful to understand um, how difficult it is to be nuanced in a media landscape that craves, thrives, and amplifies uh, just black and white binary notions of truth and anxiety and whatever, right? It's a pandemic, it's a hoax. Truth is, it's a new disease. We don't know anything about it. We're, you know, that is, uh, that is a, the paper made me very uncomfortable, but in a, in a really good way. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to my world. It feels like it's just generally a high, highly ambiguous situation where we, we don't really know a lot. And there isn't a lot of great mapping on the information environment in total is as a system. And, um, and I think we do have a tendency, number one, as a society and culture to try to make things binary when they really aren't. And then the second thing is that we also hone in on like really specific problems, mm -hmm. right? So we only look at a small subset of what's happening as opposed to how this works in a, in a bigger kind of ecosystem. Yeah. I, I also really liked that you laid out things change. Scientists are learning about what's new, what's the next thing. So the truth that was stated two weeks ago is different now and people have a hard time adapting to that. Yeah, I mean, I think that was really quite apparent in the debate around masks, right? Mm -hmm. So especially in Canada, our chief medical officer had been telling people for, and it's like short time frames here, but for a couple of weeks that they shouldn't be wearing masks because it won't protect them and it won't help them. And partly that was because they didn't want to have a big rush on the PPE for the rest of right. you know, healthcare professionals who are on the front line. But at the same time, as there was like a pushback, I think more from the public and studies were starting to emerge that it may reduce things somewhat, transmission somewhat, um, she had to make an about face. And and that can that can hurt credibility over time because if they were wrong on this, maybe they're wrong on the next thing. Yeah, and it's it's interesting, right? Because it's a matter of scale in the scientific world, you wouldn't lose credibility because your audience accepts that information changes, new studies emerge. In fact, it's a, quite a miracle how quickly some of these studies can be done with the data modeling. But yeah, in the in the public sphere where they want very clear guidance that. Uh, 
that feels like the audience has shifted. It's not quite ready for that level of uh, adjustment. And I, I think we had very much the same issue here, which was don't buy PPE because you're hurting doctors. And then the next week, it just felt like every media outlet was trying to write a different take because they wanted also to attract the eyeballs, right? That was uh, where people's attention was and that was top of mind. But man, talk about a lot of conflicting information. And then everyone you're talking to is an expert on some facet of the pandemic. You're like, yeah, but I just read a study at 2 p.m. that said masks are the thing. And you're like, but mine at 2.30 said that it's not a thing. Right. It's a, it's a shifting sands issue. Exactly. And and when you have everybody and their brother having the ability to weigh in and communicate on it, mm -hmm. it also gets a lot more complex. And depending on where people are getting their information from, and if it's increasingly social media, that means the networks that they have, their social networks. And that also complicates things because people do have a tendency to either trust people that they deem to be or understand to be influential or like them, right? So they can accept more information perhaps coming from their peer groups than they might from an unknown expert who doesn't have a relationship with them to start. Yeah. And I think you also make the good point that while scientists and policymakers may be trying to uh, hew to the evidence, anyone who wants to seize upon it opportunistically for propaganda or whatever, the, the bots just need to pick one thing and they just need to push that button in the amygdala like many times over, right? They can just drill into this one thing um, so they can become like very single issue uh, ideas. But so that actually brings up something in our previous conversation last year, uh, we had talked about the tricky nature of the nomenclature. You know, at the time, there was a lot of conversation about disinformation, but I think you had brought to the fore that, you know, whether it's that term, propaganda, influence operations, like it, it just wasn't really agreed upon um, in the academic setting. We couldn't even agree on um, those terms. So I wanted to check in and see how is that shaping up because it seems like with this partnership with Carnegie, it, it feels like there's some growing consensus around influence operation as an, as an umbrella term for more discrete elements. I don't want to put you on I the mean, spot. You don't have to answer for everyone. Just. <laughs> well, and that's the problem is that, so we've been really, in our baseline research, we we look at different things like the policy proposals that have been put out or um, interventions that have been made. And there's really no consistency in terms of how these things are being described, right? There may be agreement around a term like disinformation, but there isn't necessarily how these mm -hmm. all fit together and work as part of an operation. Of course, we try to use influence operations because we think that it is perhaps the best umbrella term to talk about the collective activities. Um, but that really hasn't, I think, solidified or, you know, been completely accepted by everyone. And again, like the more I dig into definitions, the worse it gets. So last time we had talked about the idea of influence being kind of like the positioning of medicine in the Middle Ages. And so I started looking into the definition of influence and it comes into the English language uh, because to describe the influence of the stars on fate mm -hmm. and like human character and behavior, which I think is really kind of entertaining given how we generally talk about influence with very little measurement to prove that there's been an effect based on an activity. Like astrology. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly, which is where the term comes from. Yeah, that's amazing. That's a, that's a good parallel. Um, I mean, I certainly, like influence operations more than coordinated inauthenticity, which is really hard to say 
doesn't really roll off the tongue, but I feel like that that's capturing some element of that. Well, the issue is that um, that is like a really fine level of activity, right? Like if people mm -hmm. are pretending to be something other than what they are, and they're going around and organizing communications to try to influence an audience, okay, that's one tactic. But when it comes to influence operations, I mean, I would argue that it is neither inherently good or bad, right? Mm -hmm. You, There are different things that happen to try to influence an audience or an outcome um, for a strategic reason, for an aim. Uh, and they don't always have to be nefarious, but we, again, as a society, haven't done very much or been very good at articulating where those lines are. So I'm I'm hoping that this partnership will start to push that envelope forward a little bit more. Yeah, I really, I really like that distinction of it's not always nefarious. So when we were talking about influence operations, how are these operations observed targeting public health information during the pandemic different from election related influence operations? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I actually had an answer for that. So you're going to have to scrap that. <laughs> <laughs> Give me one second. Yeah. I really thought that went out and uh, it's not coming to my head easily. Um, yeah. Mm. I, yeah, I recognize it's a big question, but I'm excited to hear what you have. You've put I think it was right in front of me the whole time. Do you want to try to ask me that again? Yeah, I'll ask you again. <laughs> so how are the influence operations observed targeting public health information during the pandemic different from election-related operations? Well, I think during an election, the infrastructure, as in the networks and communities, are built up long before the vote, right? So influence operators have fostered their channels and their audiences, and these are well-honed, working continually over time. Like these operations are, are ongoing. And the tactics are pretty predictable. So some astroturfing to make online groups appear like a community or uh, driven by a community. Social engineering is used to access information that is leaked. Politicians pick that up if it benefits them and amplify it. And media covers the politicians doing that, even if they try to avoid covering the substance of the leak. It's actually fairly predictable. Both sides We'll try to get their followers to support the candidates and while trying to throw um trying to drown out the others like their opposition to dissuade anyone in the middle from voting to their side but in a pandemic it's a lot more chaotic and different actors engage differently for a variety of reasons and they may not all be influence operators but there's a lot of people starting to weigh in. So for example, given that the pandemic started in Wuhan, there was a concerted effort by Chinese officials to shift the narrative and blame away from them. It didn't happen immediately, but definitely a few weeks mm -hmm. in. And their means for doing that was fairly coordinated, particularly using diplomats to push messages and sow doubt. But you also have scammers, right? Trying to turn a profit on unsuspecting people. Maybe they're pushing fake cures or conspiracy theories about 5G technology because they get more views on their YouTube channel or sales for their snake oil. In short, it's a bit of a free for all and anyone who wants to influence audiences has an opportunity there. So people are pretty vulnerable, they're scared and the uncertainty drives them to believe bad information. 5G thing, man, I can't even with that, but I won't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think one of the, the identified um, memes that came out of uh, a Russian troll farm was, was had intentional misspellings and everything. Um, it was like uh, something about the aluminum content in vaccines. And then do you know what happens when you put metal in the microwave and 5G is a microwave? Like the, the a leap in logic, you know? And I was like, you do know that 1G, like it's all microwaves. Like it's not like suddenly 
the the transmission the wave like the actual electromagnetic spectrum changed coming out of the towers anyway i just like i'm not even entertain it but but this is also i think part of a wider problem in that we've we've definitely entered an age like Luciano Floridi described it as hyperhistory, right? Mm -hmm. We live in this period where we are completely dependent on information communication technologies for like all aspects of our social well-being. And yet the vast majority of people really have very little understanding for what that means, right? In terms of the technological infrastructure, how that may or may not change our environment, but also how information is processed and put in front of people on a very continual regular basis. And uh, we have done little as societies to educate adults, especially, but I think even children for, for what that shift actually means and mm -hmm. the threats associated with it. I mean, I, had, I think I probably told you this in the last time, but the last time I looked at the stats for demographics in the U.S. and Canada and U.K., nearly half the population graduated high school before the web was invented. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, wow. forget the, the underlying technology. I don't think that there's a lot of understanding for what the Internet and web mean. Right. And then just yeah. adopted, you know, it's, it's like, um, in the early days of the 20th century with the internal combustion engine, you know, as cars were being adopted, who among those people could, uh, repair cars was actually pretty high because there weren't mechanics around, like you owned a car, you had to know how to operate it. And then that, that just, that divide between the knowledge and the use grew exponentially like how many people on the street are going to be able to explain an internal combustion engine but i think you do that with information technology which is rapidly accelerating and then you get into um the not just the way cell phones work but the actual transmission of that information yeah that's that's a good point there's a huge knowledge gap so i wanted to return to the paper uh which which looked at public health officials so you looked at the US, Canada, and UK, and you looked at how these officials attempted to disseminate their information. And I, I really like that you point to um, different tech techniques. So Fauci was speaking to influential people. I remember him doing the live conversation with Stephen Curry. Um, Teresa Tam in Canada was tagging celebrities like Ryan Reynolds. I, I mean, it'd be clear here, Canadian celebrities. Um, and I think this is an interesting, I think it illuminated an interesting tactic, which is public officials who may either lack the digital literacy or frankly don't have the time, that it was it was somewhat effective to be countering misinformation by communicating through people who are trusted. And you had brought this up just a few moments ago that the average person knows Stephen Curry much better than they know Anthony Fauci personally, right? So I just thought, is that something to consider going forward is aligning policy messages with, I don't want to, I don't want to get into like influencer marketing for public policy, but <laughs> like, is that a kind of a legitimate uh, tool to counter influence? Yeah. So I, I mean, the legitimacy question is problematic because again, I'm not mm -hmm. sure that these questions have really been teased out by the stakeholders that should be weighing in on that. And that would include academics and civil society for sure. Um, but I, as lone voices, public health officials really don't stand a chance of cutting through the noise. I don't think yeah. they have much choice. They have to be amplified by others, including media influencers and politicians. And I think it's a pity that in the countries we looked at, their main channels were press briefings and Twitter. None of these countries mm -hmm. really had uh, found a good or coordinated way beyond that to reach the public. It just strikes me that there isn't enough in the clutter of today's information environment to help support 
public health messaging getting out. I think it's also a bit difficult to achieve increased government communications to the public in a, in a period with waning trust. I mean, there's a fine balance between ensuring the public are properly informed and persuading them through propaganda. But in the current climate, especially in the US, I expect there would be a high degree of suspicion of, by whatever political side isn't in office around any attempts to increase communications with citizens, especially if it veers more towards influence operations. Yeah, yeah I, he- I hesitate to bring up any Cold War parallels, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, So, you know, in a unified media landscape where there was only like a few outlets, TV, radio, right, you had a mass public effort to teach children how to duck under their desks for atomic bombs. And no one can see this interview, but I'm I'm rolling my eyes, right? Because that was just to like assuage the public, but you could get your message out because there were really only like two ways and you could kind of jam the signals. And I think you've pointed to the fact that I mean, where's the government going to go? Are they going to go on TikTok to reach this group of people? Or are they going to go on Twitter to reach that group of people? And I think they might still be trying to jam their signals through some dated means uh, in order to get to, to people. Yeah, they are. And I, again, the problem is, I, th- I think, in many democracies, there was such an emphasis put on technology as it was developing, like social media coming out, that it was going to have this democratizing effect. And what they meant by that, I think, is that it would have a democratizing effect in countries where they wanted a regime change. But at home, there hasn't been a lot of like thinking through how better to engage the public. Uh, social media included was looked at as this, you know, megaphone through which we'll pump something out on this Twitter channel and we'll reach them. But it just doesn't work that way, right? People aren't necessarily following that specific account and agreeing with it. They're following a thousand other people who are saying a thousand other things. Right. It. I mean, it seems like it's time for a change in how the government is communicating with citizens. Is Have you thought through like what is a better way to disseminate that information? Yeah, I don't know if I have an easy answer on that. I mean, I do think that when it comes to public health officials, there's a big gap because people don't know who they are, right? You don't have the established relationship. And here we have a moment of crisis and we're surfacing an expert and hoping that everybody's going to listen to them because they're an expert. But maybe had they had an ongoing relationship communicating and preparing society throughout for the eventuality of a pandemic, because it does happen and it's happened more than once in human history, uh, that when the time came that things would have to be done, they would have already had established trust and a relationship with the public. Um, So I suspect for governments, there is an aspect of ongoing public communications that has to happen over time that builds up those channels, those personalities, and shows, for example, Canadians who the chief medical officer is, such that when shit hits the fan, they have the relationship (laughs) with the public. Yeah, that's a really good point. Okay, so we've been talking about how there's this disconnect between how governments are communicating with their citizens, but there's also this aspect of the technology platforms that are being controlled by private enterprise and businesses as opposed to government. So do you think there's a need for more unified protocols among platforms? And I'm, I'm thinking specifically about Twitter and Facebook. We, If you compare side by side false information on the platform, how that information is flagged or not flagged? 
So I probably have a really long rant of an answer on this one. Great. Um, <laughs> Bring it. I think my sense is that the companies try in an imperfect environment. They're often with very little detailed guidance from civil society, academia, or governments on exactly how to deal with these problems. And that's kind of frightening because we're leaving everything to, to corporate organizations to determine how we govern information. So for example, of 85 policy proposals that our team analyzed from about 51 organizations, only about a fifth offered details for implementation of those proposals. Mm -hmm. um, more than half of the proposals also recommended more collaboration between sectors, but how we collaborate is generally left out. At the same time, the pressure to do something about this problem is extremely high, and it's mostly driven by media coverage about the topic. It's not really an ideal operating environment on something so important as how we govern information in a digital age. And to date, my team has reviewed uh, more than 125 platform policies published by 13 internet platforms. These tend to be pretty disparate policies. They address individual aspects of IO even within a single organization, sort of like a patchwork of policies. And if you're dealing with a complex problem, that's that's not exactly the best approach. There tends to be stricter guidelines, for example, on advertisers than regular users, which makes sense because there's a transaction where they're profiting from them. But also on content and behavior, um, they tend to be treated kind of as separate things by separate teams. And this is another reason why we advocate for trying to describe the entire problem as influence operations. So perhaps if you take the umbrella term, you can start to look at all these activities together and start to find you know, proactive indicators of such campaigns happening. But right now, what it also feels like is that the only point of intervention we have to deal with influence operations are the platforms, it's the companies. And I mean, to that, I'd also ask, like, where are the commitments from politicians and their supporters to not engage in unacceptable influence operations? Where are the laws governing the tools that drive influence operations or around behavioral advertising or astroturfing and spreading disinformation, for example? Where's the recognition of the role of media as an amplifier of influence operations? That doesn't just mean in covering them, but also in the covering of politicians' engagement with it, right? It's, mm -hmm. It all amounts to the same. Um, where are the education campaigns to inform citizens about what it means to live in an information, foster skills for coping? I guess what I'd say is that the information environment's complex. A lot of focus goes to the platforms and rightly so, but they're also not isolated from everything else in that information environment, including different actors, media and audiences. And there isn't a lot of systemic analysis across platforms. Uh, media and the myriad actors who engage it. So yeah, we could use a lot more coordination both inside organizations and between them and with other bodies, uh, but it's just lacking across the board. That's a great answer. Unfortunately, it won't fit in the tweet that's used to promote this podcast. <laughs> um, no, no, yeah, that's a good point. We've we've raised that issue before, the, the need to educate the the citizenry, I mean, you know, even from a, like a cybersecurity perspective, it's the same thing. You know, you do these public awareness uh, campaigns about how to sp spot uh, bad links or malicious content. It's it's much harder, I think, when it's um, just information, for lack of a better term, like just media being broadcast into your brain. That's a, that's a little bit more difficult. And I think we're hoping to see a little bit more um collaboration from the platform side on the intel like the threat intel and the signatures that each because they all have different algorithms that they're using to identify this stuff but i don't know that they're sharing that signal data about what they're using because you know there's some crossover there um but okay so let's let's turn now to sort of the beginning, which is also the end of your paper, which is the, the premise of your paper 
is that truth should naturally prevail. And, but the, you know, the guiding question is, um, what do public health officials do when the scientific evidence is unclear or when what might seem true today is no longer so tomorrow, right? So that's, that's the shifting sands argument again. So I guess, how do, how do you get public buy-in without concrete evidence? How do we get to a point where, you know, these nuanced information sets, it, let, let's restrict the conversation to public health. Um, how do we get that into the public sphere in a, in a reliable manner? Yeah, so I'd, I'd actually argue that the premise of the paper wasn't that truth should prevail or will prevail. Um, more it was playing on the many times right. that I've heard it claimed that, the tr that more truth would somehow trump disinformation. I think we need to recognize that there's a tendency to think in opposites, which we've already talked about, truth mm -hmm. versus fiction, as if all information, ideas, and opinions can be so neatly divided. Moreover, while truth is very important, a lot of people simply don't care about it, or they need answers to satisfy what is a neurological response to uncertainty, right? So mm -hmm. I think we have to accept that we have a complicated relationship with truth. Um, for there to be public buy-in without evidence, there should be trust. And again, we come back to this. How many average people could name the chief medical officer in their country before this happened? How much did they know or understand what would happen during a pandemic? My guess is very few. Our governments don't do a great job of preparing us for things, to be frank. For there to be trust, there needs to be a relationship, and that takes time to establish, and it needs to be ongoing. I wouldn't say that we, uh, our team is actively tracking influence operations. More so our work has been focused on providing a baseline on what is currently known about influence operations and the field mm -hmm. tackling it. So we are working through quite a few um, baseline studies that we hope to publish in the coming months, looking at the types of, I don't know why I'm telling you that paragraph. Please let me just stop there. No, that's exciting. I mean, I look <laughs> yeah. forward to it. I thought- I'll I give thought, you that as a like, close, okay? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Again, I thought that this paper took a more interesting tack than we have seen um, in, instead of just analyzing the way misinformation or influence operations are propagated. It's how do you communicate in that um, media sphere, which is very interesting. So, I mean, the paper came out in, in July and it's, it's only September now, but have you already seen or observed any other trends as, as it relates to those baseline studies? Yeah, that's where that answer was. Uh, I, I, again, our trends, because we're looking at the baseline stuff, is is again a bigger picture. I'm I would rather hold back on saying what we found to date and share those with you when they come out, and we expect Absolutely. several of them to be coming out in the in the coming months. Um, some of the ones we're looking at are like what types of initiatives are exist researching and countering influence operations. I mentioned the policy proposals that have been made. We've also been looking at interventions tried, and we will be looking at the known effects of influence operations. But we also have data sets around the platform policies. Um, we'll most likely come out with something on legislation. So I'll probably hold those trends close until they are out the door. Entirely fair. And we very much look forward to reading them because... Yeah. Um, the work that you're doing is is very important. So what would you recommend for public health officials um, as we expect to head into the fall where we may be facing a, a flu season and the progression of potential vaccines? 
Yeah, so I think it's actually worse than that in the U.S., isn't it? Uh, not only are you facing the pandemic still and a flu season, but also the election. And I'm not sure that public health officials have the bandwidth to change course on how they communicate at this point. But if I had a magic wand, I'd give them solid partnerships with social media and internet platforms and the media, some sort of dedicated commitment to help ensure that their message was actually reaching the public. Oh, that is a, it's a good, that is a good magic wand. Um, yeah, I think we'll, we'll wrap it up there. Thank you once again. For lending your time. I know you're very busy, especially I'm sure a number of virtual panels. Um, but yeah, thank you for, for coming on again. And uh, we look forward to reading the next bit of research. Thanks for having me. Always glad to be back here. Thanks for joining us. And that does it for another episode of the Zero Hour brought to you by Safeguard Cyber. If you dig what you heard, you found it interesting, we encourage you to subscribe or leave a review. We'd appreciate it. As ever, we want to thank Kai Krogetti for sound design and post-production, Mattias Cefaletti for our theme music, and our guests for taking the time to talk to us and share their perspectives. Until next time, stay safe, stay strong. This is The Zero Hour, signing off.